You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So the North Star, its more scientific name is Polaris, is part of the constellation the Little Dipper. And I think other than the sun, it's probably the most famous, most well-known star in the northern sky. And for good reason. Uh, Though nowadays it's replaced by GPS, the North Star has been historically important for navigation in the northern hemisphere. So before people had GPS systems and phones to be able to know exactly where they are, people used the North Star, especially seafarers. They relied on the North Star as the fixed object in a fluid night sky. Remember, the Earth rotates on its axis. We don't always feel it or notice it because it's, uh, it, it's so commonplace to us. Uh, but because of this rotation, the stars in the night sky uh, appear to move. So if you were to stay up all night, look at the sky, and, 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 and kind of watch different constellations, it would look like they're moving um, across the sky. But, it, but, but the, uh, though they are technically moving, the reason they appear to be moving is because we're spinning. Except for one, the North Star. Now why is that? Well, it's because the North Star is less than one degree away from the north celestial pole. So it remains in a virtually fixed and constant position. So in other words, the north star is so close to the pivot point on the axis of the earth, it appears fixed in the night sky. You know what a pivot point is? If you take a basketball and spin it on your finger, your your finger is the, the pivot point. Though the ball is spinning, there's a fixed point. That's what the north star is. It is the fixed object in the fluid night sky. Now this is crucial if you're trying to navigate. Because if you're navigating, you need a reference point. You need a constant. You need something to refer to that, that is uh, not going to move. And so then you can calculate where you are and where you want to go in light of that consistent reference point. In fact, Polaris is more reliable than a magnetic compass. And has been a part of navigation and wayfinding techniques in the northern hemisphere for generations. For most of human history that has existed without our modern technology, when you needed to navigate your way at night, you would look to the North Star. In a fluid night sky where things change by the hour, you need a constant, something reliable to navigate your way. As we think about navigating our way through a new year in 2023, In a world that is fluid, in a world that is constantly changing, we need something constant, something consistent, something fixed to help us find our way. And as the calendar has now turned from December to January and we begin a new year, there are many unknowns. Maybe you've thought these questions. Are interest rates going to continue to soar, making it even more difficult to get a loan? Is inflation going to erode the power of the dollar? Will the challenges with my kids get better or will they grow worse? Will the upcoming political season stir deeper division in our country and in the church? Will my relationships this year, will they be a source of joy and healing or will they be sources of pain 
and hurting. And there's plenty of other questions, many other unknowns. And there's much I don't know about the coming new year. No clear constants to make navigation reliable. But as we turn to God's word, in particular to Psalm 90 this morning, the psalmist is going to give us five constants in a constantly changing world to help us navigate our way. In other words, here are five things that you can rely on, you can count on. They will not change. And knowing them will help you navigate your way in this new year. So if you're taking notes, I'll give you the five constants and then we'll unpack them as we make our way through God's word. So the first constant is this. There is refuge for the wanderer. The Bible often describes us as wanderers and there is a refuge for us. Number two, tomorrow is not guaranteed. I didn't say all the constants would be good news. There's some bad news in there, but, that, but if we know it and can expect it and can orient our lives around it, it's actually very helpful. Constant number two is tomorrow is not guaranteed. Constant number three, bad news will fill the headlines. You can just expect it. This year, headlines will come our way and there'll be bad news. Number four, constant number four is good news is on the horizon. Just as much as there's bad news, there will be good news this year. And number five, God's favor establishes our work. God's favor establishes our work. So let's unpack these constants together and we'll begin with the first one. There is refuge for the wanderer. Now, before we start unpacking all of Psalm 90 and getting into verses 1 and 2, I want to help us understand this psalm in its proper context. Because I know we're kind of parachuting into this psalm. This psalm has historically been attributed to Moses and passed down from generation to generation and then later written down and preserved for us in the book of Psalms. So what is the context of this psalm? What, what prompted Moses to write this? Now it's not immediately clear. Sometimes when you read a psalm, it's very clear what kind of what's going on because the psalmist will say exactly what's happening and it may not be explicitly stated. But if we do some digging, there are some clues in the text. First of all, the way this is written, this is a community lament. It's written in the first person plural. So the, the, the author is talking about a shared common experience and it's a lament. It's, it's grieving some things that are happening in the world. And so you'll find words like we and our. You'll find phrases like the years of our lives. Teach us to number our days. Satisfy us and so on. And so he's, he's writing uh, on behalf of the whole community. It's, a, it's not the psalm of an individual, but a community. And then when we get to verse 13, there's a prayer for God to return to his people and have pity on them. There's a prayer in verse 14 for the Lord to satisfy them with his love. And there's a recognition in verse 15 that the people of God have experienced many days and years of affliction. And so if you think through the life of Moses... If you think through his time of leadership with the people and ask this question, when would all of those requests make sense? When would the people of God have been praying for God to return to them, to have pity on them, to satisfy them, to, uh, to, to, to be their God and to deliver them out of many days of affliction? When would the people of God be singing a song of lament about their past sin? 
asking the Lord to turn to them and to be gracious and to favor them, to satisfy them and to establish the work of their hands. And in light of those questions, it starts to make sense. The psalm is written near the end of Moses' life as the people of God stood on the banks of the Jordan River ready to enter the promised land. You see, this generation of Israelites had wandered in the desert for 40 years. They had seen their parents and their grandparents, this this exodus generation, all die in the wilderness during these 40 years of affliction, during these 40 years of wandering. And now it was their turn to take the baton and to enter into the promised land and to step into this role of being the people of God. And it's time to uh, put the past behind them. It's time to look forward to enter the promised land and fulfill their calling as the people of God. And like all of the Old Testament, in particular this psalm, it invites us to enter into Israel's story. Because the more you learn about Israel's story, the more you'll find it's really our story as well. Israel is living out our experience too. Just like they were wanderers, so are we. Just like they are sojourners, so are we. And we can pray this same prayer. Lord, forgive us our sin. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and be with us as we fulfill our calling as the people of God until we are finally and forever home with you. So let's look now at the word of the Lord in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place In all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. These verses declare that though we are wanderers, though we are sojourners, we have a refuge, we have a dwelling place, and it is the Lord Himself. You see the psalmist pointing them not to uh, the, the promised land as their dwelling place but to the Lord that despite their changing circumstances no matter where they've been throughout every generation the Lord has been their home listen to Charles Spurgeon commenting on these verses wanderers though we may be in the howling wilderness yet we find a home in you even as our forefathers did when they came out of Ur of the Chaldees and dwelt in tents among the Canaanites to the saints the Lord Jehovah The self-existent God stands instead of a mansion and roof tree. He shelters, comforts, protects, preserves, and cherishes all his own. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in their God and have always done so in all ages. Not in the tabernacle or the temple do we dwell, but in God himself. Just like the people of Israel who stood on the bank of the Jordan with a whole host of unknowns. They knew people dwelt in that land. They knew difficulty uh, and affliction were headed their way. There were many things they could not have known. And yet they stand on the bank of the river going, the Lord is our dwelling place. No matter what we come across, no matter what we face, the Lord will be our home. As we stand at the beginning of a new year with a whole host of unknowns, The psalmist points us to a constant. God is everlasting. He is eternal and he is our dwelling place. The Lord has been, is, and will be 
the dwelling place for the people of God from generation to generation. Now, as the psalmist here points to the mountains, he's beautifully making his point. Have you ever seen a mountain? Like a real mountain? They're huge. They just, they, they, they tower over you, right? They seem immovable. They seem like they have been there for forever. But you know what? They haven't always been there. But there is one who put them there. There is one who brought them forth and formed the earth. And it is the everlasting God. In other words, God is not going anywhere. And therefore, wanderer, you will always have a dwelling place. You will always have a refuge. I love how Eugene Peterson translates these verses in the message. He says, God, it seems you've been our home forever. Long before the mountains were born. Long before you brought the earth itself to birth. From once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. And our limited and frail bodies with souls that can easily be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. These verses say, friend, in Christ, you are never alone. You are never homeless. You are never without refuge. You are never left to figure it out on your own. God's love for you, his approval of you, his desire to be your Lord doesn't shift with the times. It doesn't change based on your performance. God's grace has connected you to the ultimate refuge, the ultimate dwelling place. Paul David Tripp's, uh, Tripp writes this. As God's child, I must never see myself as poor and forsaken. I must never buy into the lie that I have no recourse or hope. I must never think that my life is ruled by my difficulty. I must never give way to despondency or despair. Grace has opened the door of hope and refuge to me by connecting me to the one who is eternal and who rules all the circumstances and relationships that would cause me to feel alone. See, as God's child, we are never left without hope. Despondency and despair are never to be our name. While there's much I don't know about the coming year, there is a constant to guide my way that God is my refuge. That's our first constant. Now let's look at verse 3 to see our second. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The psalmist writes, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and the evening it fades and withers. If you were with us this fall, these verses sound like they were borrowed from Ecclesiastes, don't they? Do you remember when we went through that series, chapter after chapter, the preacher from Ecclesiastes reminded us that life is brief, that life is fleeting, and in the end, everyone will return to the dust of the ground. If verses 1 to 2 are meant to anchor us to the eternality of God, verses 3 to 6 are meant to confront us with the reality of our own mortality. God is eternal, yet we are mortal. Karl Marx called 
religion, the opiate of the masses. Many uh, claims against Christianity are made uh, to try to deny it and saying it really parades as like pie-in-the-sky escapism. But I wonder if those making these claims have actually ever read the Bible. The Bible is brutally honest about our dire situation. It confronts us over and over with our own mortality. See, because of the curse of sin, one out of every one person is headed for death. That's each and every one of you. Okay, if you didn't hear me say it enough during Ecclesiastes, look at me. You are going to die. You're going to die. There are not going to be medical advances in your lifetime or in the lifetimes to come that are going to conquer death. You are going to die. Every day you live, do you realize with each passing day, you're just one day closer to your death day? Let that sit on, I mean, you're headed towards the end. That's not escapism. That's realism. That's not an opiate to dull the senses. It's meant to be a smelling salt to arouse consciousness. You know when someone is knocked out cold and they break open that little uh, pouch and it's meant, it's got like um, ammonia in it or whatever and it's meant to surge you awake? That's what these verses are doing. It's saying, wake up. You're going to die. Don't bury your head in the sand. Don't pretend like it's not going to happen. Mark my words. Some people living right now will have the death year 2023 on their headstone. Give it time. But you can walk through the cemeteries and there will be 2023 on some people's headstones. Some people will pass away and they're far away. That we don't really know them. They're just kind of famous people in the headlines. We've already said goodbye to Pope Benedict and Barbara Walters. They recently passed away and there will be more. Some will be even close to home. This year, some people will say goodbye to a mother to a father, a brother, or a sister. Death will be a part of this year. And just as the eternality of God is a constant, so also, also is the mortality of humanity. You cannot pretend, believing a lie, that you are immune to death. You're not. Denial doesn't change the fact that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Now how does this constant Help us navigate life. We talked a lot about it in our Ecclesiastes series. But for today, remember this. Our looming date with death can help us to live our life backwards. Here's what I mean. You can live in light of the end. If you think about the fact that your life is not, tomorrow is not guaranteed. It changes how you live today. Is death an intruder into God's creation order? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is death an enemy? Absolutely. I'm not saying that we become friends with death. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that your day of death can be a mentor to produce in you a kind of sobriety and perspective that denying it will never give you. Death can become a tuning fork to calibrate your life 
when it goes out of tune. My daughter Evie got a ukulele for Christmas, and she's been learning how to play it. But it sounds terrible unless you tune it, right? It's got to be in tune, or it doesn't matter if you have the right uh, 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 strings pressed down. If it's out of tune, it won't sound right. And you need a constant. You need something to tune it by. And so we go to the keyboard and we play the notes and we tune the strings. Death can be like a tuning fork for you. To remind you, to calibrate your life when it goes out of tune. It can be a compass that keeps you focused on where to go. If you live with that in mind, not as a place of despair or discouragement, but realize your time will one day come to an end. And so make the most of it. Death can become a mentor that constantly reminds you of what is trivial and what is significant. If you talk to people who know that the days of their lives are coming to an end, maybe they have a terminal diagnosis. You never hear them say, I wish I spent more days in the office. I wish I had just done one more of those projects. Or I wish I had done something trivial. When they speak of what they wish they had done, it's always leaning into more relationship. Things of significance. Things of purpose. And what the psalmist is saying is don't wait till there's no more time. Think about those things today. Make the most of your days. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The first constant, there is a refuge for the wanderer. Number two, tomorrow is not guaranteed. And number three, bad news fills the headlines. Verse seven, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. And we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I promise the psalmist will get to some good news. But before he does, there's more bad news. Not only do we have a looming date with death. But in the course of our 70 to 80 years, we will experience toil and trouble. In 2023, you can expect bad news. So this year, you will have missed opportunities. You can expect to miss some deadlines. You're going to be late to some things. Some of your plans are not going to pan out. You're going to go to your car and it's not going to start sometimes. There's going to be unexpected expenses. Bills are going to come in the mail that you didn't plan for. You, can have un, you will have unproductive weeks where it feels like no matter how many hours you plugged away, you feel like you got nothing done. There will be days when it feels like you just can't get out of that rut. You will feel thorns and thistles of the curse of sin. It's very likely the Red Sox are going to stink this year. Just bad news, man. And that's the point of this section. The psalmist reminds us that the frustration of life and the inevitability of death, the bad news and the ultimate bad news all have the same origin, that our world is cursed by sin. 
Verse 7 says that we are brought to an end by your anger. Now when we talk about the anger of God, we're not talking about uh, like a temper tantrum or God is not capricious, just like smiting people out for no good reason. He's not temperamental. He doesn't fly off the handle. God's anger, his wrath is just. There's a righteous cause for it. See, when we talk about God's anger or God's wrath, we're talking about his settled opposition towards sin. The closest thing that I can think of is when you read in the headlines about some grave injustice and th- like against humanity and you feel a sense of indignation when you're like, this is not right. It's wrong. It's just patently wrong. Even in a world like ours that is so confused about what is right and wrong, when severe injustice happens, the world collectively says, this is wrong. Think um, school shootings. No one's going, well, I don't know. Maybe the gunman had a good reason for it. No, everyone categorically, even, even people who want to deny that there's real evil in the world, that morality is black and white, comes out and says, this was wrong. That indignation against that is God's, it's, it's the closest thing I can think of to describe God's indignation, settled opposition towards sin. But see, God is not confused about right and wrong. He's established it. He knows it full well. There there are no gray areas for God. There's never a time where God's like, I just don't really know how to weigh in on this issue. And in the same way that we can't just overlook injustice, God can't as well. It is his just judgment to rule against our rebellion, iniquity, and sin. And what this psalm is telling us is, The reason we die, the reason our our life ends like a sigh is because we are under judgment. In his commentary on the Psalms, Michael Wilcox says this, we are mortal because God is angry and God is angry because we are sinful. In this Psalm, the community is acknowledging their sin. This is similar to why we do corporate confession of sin in our liturgy. We do it every single week. It's us coming together as a people and saying, we have sinned against you, Lord, in word and thought and deed. It's not an arbitrary part of our gathering. It's a very important part of our gathering. It's a time for us as the people of God modeling just like this to say, we've sinned and it's not okay and it's not right. And then we spend time as individuals confessing our sins to the Lord. It's to teach us not only in that moment to really do those things, but it's also teaching us to train ourselves to get into this habit of recognizing, confessing our sins. We're standing in a great tradition of the people of God who know that we need to regularly and corporately confess our sins to him. If I could sum up these last few verses, it would be this. The psalmist is saying, life is short and it's marked by difficulty. In the broad scheme of things, 70, 80, 90 years, it's really short. It's really brief. 
and there's going to be difficulty along the way. And so before we get to some good news in verses 12 to 17, we need to come to grips with the bad news and set proper expectations. So how can this bad news actually be a source of constancy in the new year? Well, there was a research study done in 1985 by David Meister about waiting in lines. Anybody like waiting in lines? I don't think so. No one likes to wait in lines. And this study was done to uh, kind of think through the psychology of waiting. We can't get rid of waiting in lines. How can we make people feel better about it? It was a, uh, a, a landmark uh, study. And the, the findings of this study were used by people like Disney and theme parks and all kinds of other uh, just realities in our life where we have to wait in line to go, how can we do this better? You go to, to Market Basket, right? You're going to wait in a line. Well, how can we make that experience better? There's a lot of findings, but one of the main findings was this. Uncertain waits are longer than known finite waits. Let me say that again. Uncertain waits feel longer than known finite waits. It's not that the the time is different. It's your experience of that time. So the takeaway was, if you can help people have proper expectations on the wait times then the, your experience of it feels different. So, for example, you go to a restaurant uh, and you say, well, how, you know, I'd like to, uh, we'd like to have a table. And they say, uh, it's going to be an hour. Okay, now you have a, an opportunity in that moment. You can decide if it's worth the wait. If you're saying, no, listen, this is where we want to go. Uh, you know, by the time we go somewhere else and drive around, it's just going to be uh, just as long. It's Friday. We really want to eat here. An hour is fine with us. The group says we're willing to wait the hour. Now you have just signed up to wait. And your experience of that time, if it's, if it's right around that hour mark, you, you may not have liked it or enjoyed it, but you're not going to be mad about it. They told you what to expect. You set your expectations there. And then the time came and went, and it was fine. Now, what happens if they came to you and said, we have no idea how long it is? Could be 20 minutes. Could be three hours. You may not even get a table, Right? Well, then your, your idea of entering into that wait is different. Or what happens if they say, oh yeah, we've got a table, be 10 minutes. Then it turns into an hour. How do you feel about that time after that? Well, now you're angry. Now you're like, I, we better get like a free appetizer or something, right? Even though the time is exactly the same, your expectation of it changes your whole experience. So what's my point? The Bible is telling you, Hey, there's going to be bad news this year. You're going to wait in line this year. Things are not going to go like you've planned. You're not going to show up and have everything handed to you. So if we can set those proper expectations, it can change our experience as we go through those bad times. What these verses are trying to do is to help us avoid the extremes of becoming a hardened pessimist or an eternal optimist. Those are extremes on both ends. This hardened pessimist that says, everything is terrible, nothing's going to go my way, right? Just like being a Debbie Downer all the time. Or this other side of being the eternal optimist who never anticipates bad news, never anticipates that anything can go wrong. The Bible is saying, live somewhere in the middle. Have some kind of expectation that, so don't be so surprised when things don't go your way. 
It's not good news that bad news fills the headlines. It's not good news that you're going to experience trouble and toil. But it is true news that is going to happen. And proper expectations can help you deal with it when it comes. This is just life in a fallen world. Now you think about it. How did this psalm begin? It began by telling us that God is a safe place to dwell. There's refuge for the wanderer. Why does the psalmist begin that way? It's because life in a fallen world is not safe. It's not convenient. It's not easy. And he's saying, remember, when you experience that toil and trouble of living in a life full of bad news, remember there's a refuge for you. There is a safe place to turn. Our first constant, there is refuge for the wanderer. The second, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Third constant, bad news fills the headline. And fourth, as promised, good news is on the horizon. So he says in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. As often is the case when you have a lament in the Psalms, there's a turn. There's a turn from the bad news to the good news. And here the psalmist prays for God to move. And he begins to rehearse God's faithfulness. The way we say it today is they, they preach the gospel to themselves. They, they say out loud the good news. They believe in their hearts so that their own ears can hear it. There's a con- this constant reminds us that no matter how dark the situation, no matter how bad the news... That God desires for us to have wisdom, to live faithfully, and to ultimately be satisfied with his steadfast love. Pastor Phil Thompson writes this, Into the dissatisfaction of this life, God will bring satisfaction. Into sorrow, there will be rejoicing. Into the depths of pain, gladness. And in spite of lost years, eons of restoration. Satisfaction and rejoicing, friends, don't come because your circumstances change. Your circumstances will will just always be, be, be changing. It's, that's, the, that's part of that constantly changing uh, thing in the world. Satisfaction and rejoicing come as the ups and downs of life drive us deeper into the arms of God. So real satisfaction, true rejoicing don't come with a different set of circumstances, but they come as we give ourselves to the Lord. So let's unpack these six verses the, the final six verses in the psalm are prayers that we can pray in 2023. So if you're looking for practical application, these last six verses all, are all prayers that you should be praying throughout 2023. And what I love about these inspired prayers is, uh, is not just that they're preserved for us, but that they're, we can pray them with a kind of bold confidence because we know these prayers align with God's will for our lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I sit down to pray, I don't know what I should pray. I don't know what I ought to pray. I don't know necessarily what words to pray. Praying scripture back to God is a great way to know, I know these prayers align with the will of God. God gave me these prayers so I could pray them back to him. So the first prayer is a prayer for wisdom. He says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now this is not a prayer 
for the Lord to tell you how many days you have lived or a prayer to, to know how many more you will live. It's not about the, the number itself. This is a prayer for self-awareness. Self-awareness. It's a, it's a prayer to learn how to live in light of our own mortality and to make our days count. It's a, it's a prayer to, to be aware of the everyday reality of your life. I don't know about you, but I can get into this routine where, you know, days go on in and I'm like, what? What has my life been about these last few days? It's kind of like um, sometimes if you, uh, you drive to places you've driven many, many times, you get there and you think, I don't even know how I got here, right? You just go on autopilot. You know those roads so well, you don't have to be actively aware of what you're doing at the wheel. Now, that's kind of scary, isn't it? That we can be like unaware of us moving in a multi-ton object, right? But we do it every single day. Teaching us to number our days is like saying, Lord, help me not to just live on autopilot. I don't want to be unaware of what I'm doing. Don't, we don't want to waste the gift of life with triviality. And even worse, give ourselves to, to sin that will erode lasting satisfaction. Did you know that one of God's favorite prayers to answer is a prayer for wisdom? It's one of his favorite prayers to answer. How do I know that? James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Guys, God is not stingy. This is one of those prayers that God says, if you would just ask me for wisdom, I would give generously to all without reproach and it would be given to you. Pray for wisdom. Make that a prayer this year. Second prayer. It's a prayer for mercy. Another prayer God loves to answer. This is asking God to turn from wrath and extend mercy and grace. This is the only recourse for sinners in the hands of an angry God. God is right to judge sinners for our iniquity. He is right to judge us for our sins. He is right to judge us for the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. And without mercy, none of us would escape the wrath of God. And yet the gospel tells us that this same just God is uh, patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And it is his glory to forgive sinners. In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses says, show me your glory, the Lord says, I am the Lord. Abounding in steadfast love. I am slow to anger. Forgiving sins from one generation to the next. You know those verses are the most often uh, uh, quoted verses throughout the Bible? Over and over and over again, the Lord says, this is who I am. I'm slow to anger. I'm patient. I'm abounding in steadfast love. It's his glory to forgive sinners. As sin drives us from God, right? That's what sin does. It drives us away from him. Repentance does what? It draws us to God. Though our lives are short, they do not need to end in bitterness. Repentance then opens up the floodgates for God's mercy and love. Think about a, a dam that is like holding back water. There is incredible pressure pushed up against that wall. When we pray for mercy, when we acknowledge our sin, it just 
opens up the floodgate. And all of that pressure is released as his mercy washes over us. Third prayer, the psalmist prays, satisfy us with your love that we may rejoice. And you see the progression here, right? A prayer for wisdom. The most wise thing you can do is go, I'm a sinner and I need grace. You pray for that mercy and then what's available to you? The satisfying love of God. Let's look again at Charles Spurgeon. Good men know how to turn the darkest trials into arguments at the throne of grace. He who has but the heart to pray need never be without pleas and prayer. The only satisfying food for the Lord's people is the favor of God. And this Moses earnestly seeks for. And as the manna fell in the morning, he beseeches the Lord to send at once his satisfying favor that all through the little day of life they may be filled there within. Are we soon to die? Then Lord, do not starve us while we live. Just like the Israelites went out each morning to gather the manna, this prayer is saying, Lord, as we wake up each day, would you satisfy us? Would you give us yourself? Would you feed us with yourself? See, when your sins have been forgiven by grace through faith, when your record of debt has been canceled because it was nailed to the cross, when God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, then you can rejoice and be glad and be filled with the satisfying love of God. Fourth prayer. Psalmist prays and asks for God's blessing in proportion to their affliction. Remember, they've been afflicted, wandering in the desert 40 years. And now they're praying for the blessing of God. Now on one hand, when it comes to asking for God's blessing, we need to be careful not to define blessing according to our terms or material wealth or the world standard of blessing. That said... This prayer is a, this psalm is an invitation to pray for blessing. It's not a wrong thing to say, Lord, bless us, keep us, give us yourself. Bless us as you, Lord, see fit. That's a kind of prayer for blessing that you can pray. Be grateful for how God will decide to answer that prayer. And remember, the New Testament promised that all of our afflictions, all of our trouble, all of our toil, our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that even, in, even the, the, the hardest realities of your life, the hardest afflictions will one day become blessing for those in Christ. First constant, there's refuge for the wanderer. Second, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Third, bad news fills the headlines, third, or fourth, good news is on the horizon. And finally and fifthly, God's favor establishes our work. Verse 16, last prayer. Lord, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of our Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Life is short and difficult. We're a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. Our day with our date with death is looming, and yet, friends, there's work to be done. Just like the people of Israel, they stood on the bank of the Jordan River to enter into the promised land to serve the purposes of God, to take this inheritance that they were being given, to establish the nation of Israel, and to play their part in God's redemption story. So we too 
We too have work to do. We too take our place in the story. And we'll fill our time with mundane realities that are simply just a part of being human. So we're going to eat. We're going to get dressed. We're going to do things that seem repetitive and mundane. And it's just part of being the people of God. But we're also going to do incredible things. We do things like playing our part in building an economy that provides means and resources to fund and fuel everyday life. That's an incredible thing that we do. We're going to make friendships that give flavor to life. That's a beautiful part of life. We'll, we'll marry, we'll raise families, we'll produce little children that reflect the image of God. They'll grow up and take their part. We'll do eternal things like share the gospel, disciple people. I was reminded, I, I turned 40 this, this week, and um, Andy threw me an amazing uh, uh, birthday week. It was awesome. Um, and, and one of the guys who flew in uh, was a guy that I discipled when, uh, when we lived in Dallas. And um, I was just reminded as he was just, you know, talking about uh, times that in some, sometimes felt Monday to me, like going to get a cup of coffee or him coming with me as, as we were renovating our house and doing all these things. And, 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 and in one sense, they felt mundane and regular. And yet he spoke about how they built him up and, and showed him uh, what it looked like to follow after the Lord. It showed him what it looked like to uh, raise a family and to be a husband. And I was just reminded that was a beautiful, eternal, God-given gift. We get to do that, guys. We get to play our part. We get to build God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And in all of this, the psalmist knows that it's the Lord who establishes the work of our hands. So as we go about the mundane things, the eternal things, the, 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 the trivial things, the significant things, the, the everyday moments of our lives and those moments of our lives where we know we're standing in, in the presence of something awesome. All of it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to establish the work of our hands. In a world that is constantly changing, an inconsistent Christian, take heart. God is constant. He will answer the prayers of his people to establish the work of our hands according to his purposes, fueled by his power. In other words, God's favor is what establishes our work. Where it feels like we're doing things at times and we're not sure if it's going to accomplishes, uh, accomplish the purposes uh, of God. Know this, God's purposes always prevail. So he will take our limited energy, our limited know-how. There are times when it's like, I don't fully know what I'm doing, but I'm stepping out in faith here. You can know the Lord will establish the work. He will see it to completion. That's why the Apostle Paul, in light of the gospel, can encourage us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, therefore, he just talked about the power of the resurrection. At the very end, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Though we live in a vain and fleeting and brief world, 
The Lord does not let our work just fizzle away. He will establish it. So friends, as we step into 2023, as we begin a new year, I know there are many unknowns. There are many things that if we just sat here and listed them all out, it would be cause for anxiety and fear. Our world is rapidly changing. But we are not a people without hope. We are not a people with no constant, nothing consistent. Psalm 90 teaches us that though we wander, we are not lost. We are not homeless. We are not without a dwelling place and a refuge. And though tomorrow is not guaranteed and bad news can fill our headlines, good news is on the horizon. And when we abandon our vain efforts at finding satisfaction in sinful pursuits, when we repent and turn to Christ, we will find satisfaction that our hearts desire. And from there, by grace, through faith, the Lord will establish the work of our hands. Let's pray.